0: And I would say that this this passage in 2 Corinthians is uh, one of the most significant ones uh, in these two letters because really what we see here is Paul uh, showing how all of the truths and principles he's unpacked uh, over many chapters uh, is bearing fruit in his own life. He becomes very personal here. Last week we saw this statement, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Now Paul is quoting here in verse 17 from Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Now when a New Testament writer quotes an Old Testament verse, I just lost the... uh, mic cover there. There we are. When a New Testament writer quotes an Old Testament verse, what they're essentially saying is uh, here is the scriptural principle that's guiding what I'm saying here and what should likewise guide what we say and do. This scripture tells us that boasting is okay as long as it's directed towards the Lord and not ourselves. Boasting in ourselves is ultimately an attempt to steal God's glory. It's the essence of foolishness. So when he goes on to say, in 11 verse 1, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness, do bear with me, and then in our passage this morning, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What he's doing in a way is the same as what Solomon did when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. Here's something Solomon says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold... On folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Solomon said, "I, I had a go at this folly thing, even though my wisdom was still with me from God. I, I, I gave it a go to see where it would end." And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, "Let's run with this." unscriptural idea, this foolishness of boasting in ourselves and see where it takes us. Will it produce righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit or will it produce something else? Here's what Solomon concluded. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Paul wants us to see that the, the path of these so-called super apostles he's speaking about is the same as that. And it, so it will be for anyone who follows their lead and takes the, the ideas of worldly wisdom and power and boasting on board so this is what he does in verse 22 and the first part of 23 he uses the same criteria as these super apostles and he says well if you're going to use that standard I should be considered equal in fact I should be considered greater than them But to speak this way, he says, is like being a madman, a fool. So he then lists all of the things that the super apostles would have considered foolish. Things that if he were truly serving the Lord faithfully in their thinking, he should be immune to labours, beatings, lashes stoning, dangers sleepless nights, hunger and so on and then to cap it off something that surely would be seen as a lack of faith feeling the daily pressure of anxiety for all the churches shouldn't he be bold shouldn't he be full of faith, claiming and declaring the victory of Christ over the church rather than being anxious and worried that maybe they'd been led astray by Satan. He sees the weaknesses of the church with all their problems, their conflicts, their divisions and he too becomes weak and discouraged It's almost as if he's saying here that all of the physical sufferings he's been through seem trivial in light of this anxiety that he feels. Over the years I've seen a number of people burn out or give up on ministry because they went into it with a triumphalist attitude somehow thinking that even though the church has never been perfect for the last 2,000 years, that somehow they will discover the secret to building a ministry that was uh, without problems. If we have that expectation of the church, whether we're in ministry or not, we're always going to be either disillusioned or deluded either give up on the church because it's never up to scratch or we'll live in some kind of fantasy world where we'll think that we've somehow created the perfect church. But Paul's a realist. He knows that his ministry will mean experiencing anxiety when things in the church don't measure up. He's interested in investing not in a building or an institution or a system but in the lives of people and that will mean sharing in the struggles and the conflicts that all people, Christian or not, go through because we're living as sinners in a broken world. So what does it look like then to to boast of the things that show our weakness? Well, Paul turns to some specific examples from his own life to show us. The first thing he mentions is uh, this incident in Damascus. To understand the full background to this story, uh, let's look at the full story in the book of Acts. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were travelling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord... So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptised. And taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of all those who called upon his name, this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Quite a story. And there are many things in that story that Paul could have mentioned. His personal encounter with the risen Jesus, his direct communication with him, his vision of Jesus as he was praying, the miraculous prayer of Ananias that cured him of his blindness, his bold preaching Of Jesus as the Son of God that confounded the Jews. But which part of the story does he mention? The part where he had to flee for his life, hiding in the basket so that he could escape. Now, a few weeks ago, I said that we all have a wonderful testimony to share. If you believe in Jesus, Ultimately, your testimony is about Jesus, not yourself. We don't need a radical conversion story, a spectacular watershed moment because we have the most miraculous, astounding watershed moment of all history to testify to, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. That doesn't exclude us from speaking of our own experience as Paul has here. It doesn't exclude us from speaking of the reality of Jesus present in our lives, witnessing his work in us and through us. It does, however, mean being very thoughtful, very prayerful about what we tell of our experience and how we tell it in a way that it brings glory to Christ and not ourselves, Now there were two occasions when Paul uh, told this story of his Damascus Road experience. Both of them were when he was giving a defence when he stood trial, once before a Roman official and once before King Agrippa. Both of those contexts required the full story to be told and it was all part of Paul's strategy to get to Rome so that he could preach the gospel there and then to the ends of the earth. In those cases he wasn't boasting, he was simply presenting the facts. But here he knows that while the Corinthians probably know the full story, he also knows that they're probably inclined to latch onto the parts of the story that sound spectacular and miraculous and to ignore the parts of the story that sound like a bit of an anticlimax. This contrast is what Martin Luther called a theology of glory versus a theology of the cross. A theology of glory expects God's power to look like human power but magnified many times greater. And in Luther's day, what that looked like was a big, spectacular, grand church that was in league with political power, had all the grandeur of the buildings and the structures and all of the rituals that people would go through that would require them to go straight into the presence of God and to partake of his holiness based on their works Theology of the cross, however, says that God's power is primarily displayed in the weak things, exemplified by the weakness of the cross. God's wisdom is shown in the foolishness of the gospel message of Christ crucified. A person can only come into the holy presence of God through a mediator because I'm not sufficient in and of myself. So a theology of glory says that it's techniques that are able to save the person who does them. A theology of the cross says it's the gospel that's the power of God to save those who simply believe. Theology of glory points to the powerful, successful miracle worker as a proof that God must be real. A theology of the cross points to weak, persecuted, suffering servants whose lives are laid down for the sake of Christ and the Gospel. A theology of glory says, let me tell you about my amazing supernatural encounter with Jesus. A theology of glory, of of the cross, sorry, says, let me tell you about how I've lost everything in this world and it's taught me that Jesus is all that I need. We see this contrast so clearly in chapter 12. Verses 1 to 10. Paul gives us two more stories of encounters that he has with Jesus where this point was driven home to him. The first is this being caught up into the third heaven. Who was this man that he speaks of 14 years ago? What did he experience when he was caught up into the third heaven or into paradise? Now, even though Paul's speaking here in the third person, we have good reason to say it was actually Paul's experience. It's not uncommon for biblical writers to speak of themselves in this way. John, in his Gospel, speaks of the disciple whom Jesus loved, meaning himself. Mark, when he tells of a young man who was present when Jesus was arrested and they grabbed his coat and he ran away naked, possibly he was speaking of himself. It was a way of including yourself in the story but deflecting the glory away from yourself and onto the one that mattered, onto Jesus, making him the main focus. So in verse 7, sorry it's not up there, he indicates that these surpassingly great revelations were given to him. But regardless of whether they were him or someone else, the point is the same, isn't it? He must not build himself up or commend himself on the basis of whatever revelations, whatever heavenly experiences God has given him so that he'll speak to other people as if he's greater than them, so that he'll do it in a way that he can take credit for it. He'd rather speak of other people or speak of himself in the third person to deflect the glory from himself. Now what did this man see and hear in paradise? Well we don't know because we're told in verse 4 that these things can neither be told in a way that can be really comprehended or expressed in human words but also they're not even permitted to utter them even if they could be explained. Now that straight away should tell us how do we respond to all of these heaven tourism books that are out there. These stories of people dying and visiting heaven and then returning so that they can assure us that heaven is for real and to tell us what we have to look forward to. Do you know that these books um, combined, at least the ones that have been published by well-known publishers, have sold over 20 million copies? And the movie adaptations have brought in over $105 million. There are online YouTube prophets who claim to visit heaven regularly and to tell us things that no one's ever seen before that are not even in the Bible. But here's the thing, we don't don't need those people to be visiting heaven and coming back and telling us whether it's real or not. We already know That heaven is for real. We know it from the Bible. Jesus said to Nicodemus, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness... So must the serpent, sorry, not the servant, the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. See what he's saying here. Firstly, there's only one person who's qualified to tell us about heavenly things. That's Jesus because he came from heaven. But he's not going to use that to get Nicodemus to believe. Instead, he points Nicodemus to the cross when Jesus will be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness and only those who look to the cross will be enabled to believe and to have eternal life. If we want to grasp the true nature of heaven, which really is another way of saying, God himself we just need to look to the time and the place where the sovereign all powerful creator of the universe humbled himself as a man submitted to all the violence and the shame of the cruel cross we just need to look at the place where he who was without sin became sin for us where the one who who actually invoked the curse of sin and death over creation as a response to humanity's sin, where that one placed himself under the curse, where he became a curse for us, where the author of life, the one who gives life and who takes life away, lay stone-cold dead in a tomb. Jesus now, the risen Jesus, sits at the right hand of the Father and reigns over all things with all authority in heaven and earth, but he doesn't claim that as a right, as the Son of God. He's been given it by the Father because he humbled himself, became obedient even to death. So Paul's heavenly vision, which uh, happened not long after his conversion, was part of what Jesus was doing in preparing him to be the apostle for the Gentiles. It likely gave him the insights that he needed into the mystery of the Father's plan to gather people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Remember, Jesus had said to Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So it was an experience designed to prepare him to proclaim the Gospel, not to be a story to be told that would supplement the Gospel as if the Gospel needed an extra boost, as if it needed his own personal testimony for it to be made effective. There's another story then that he tells from his personal experience, one through which he learnt the truth of Jesus' all-sufficient grace that's found in personal weakness. Now, we, like the trip to heaven, we can only speculate about what specifically this thorn in the flesh was. Some people think it may have been a physical disability or an ongoing sickness. But the fact that he calls it a messenger of Satan makes me think that it was more likely a spiritual battle. Maybe a persistent temptation that came back again and again and again. Maybe it was his anxiety, a particular fear or something that, that would strike him and make him discouraged. Maybe it was something that uh, today we would describe as a mental health struggle. Well, we don't know exactly what it was except that it was from God and it was designed to prevent him from ever thinking that he was better or more spiritual than anyone else or had the right to exalt himself over anyone just because of this particular calling he'd received from Jesus. We can easily, I easily, slip into a mindset that says that as Christians we're supposed to have our lives all sorted out. If only we trust Jesus enough, we'll have victory over all of our problems. And then, with that mindset, we come along to church and we make sure we put up a facade, a smile on our face to give the impression that everything's fine and we're standing unshaken in our faith. Why do we do it? It might be simply that we're fearful of people thinking less of us than we would like them to. Maybe we've been given the impression, or maybe you've been told, that we should do it for the sake of the Gospel, that we show by our well-balanced lives that the Gospel is powerful, that Jesus does help people with their problems. And we can think that if everyone in the church has sorted out their lives and when the church is a well-oiled machine with impressive programs and systems, then a non-Christian will look at us and be impressed and think, oh, I want to join these people and get my problems sorted out as well. That's not what the world needs to see in the church or in Christians. If they do, it'll just seem to them like we're just another self-help program, just like all the other self-help programs that offer success and happiness. What the world actually needs to see of the church and of Christians is what actually is behind the facade that we might try and put up. We're a a gathering of sinners saved by grace. We're broken. We are misfits. We're nobodies. We're people who more often get things wrong than we get them right. But... We're looking to Jesus. We're constantly fleeing to the foot of the cross to receive his mercy. We're living dependent on his grace, not on our ability to keep the law. We're people who are not only weak in every way, but people who find that in the midst of our weakness, Jesus Gives us all sufficient grace. He gives us a strength that to the world is foolish and incomprehensible because it's not power as the world defines it. If we try and build our Christian lives on our strengths, if we try and grow our church on our strengths, then we'll end up commending ourselves. And marketing the church will use worldly methods to ensure that the attention ultimately is on us. But if we truly seek to understand and practice what's being said here, boasting all the more gladly of my weaknesses, well, what will we find? The power of Christ will rest on us. Did you notice how Paul said that the form, the messenger from Satan, was given to him? It was a deliberate action of the Father, whose gifts are always good, always perfect. So that in the midst of the battle, where his weaknesses were magnified, he would know and see the grace of Jesus even more magnified. He thought he needed to be delivered from this thorn. He thought he needed a breakthrough to give him victory over what was tormenting him before he could speak of the power of God. In fact, he had to learn that even if God were to never take this thorn away, even if he had to battle with it for the rest of his life, it was so that he would know and be a display of Christ's power in the midst of the battle. Now this isn't an easy thing to take on board and it wasn't easy for Paul. It took three times of him pleading before he got it, before he had a breakthrough and the breakthrough wasn't having the problem fixed, it was having his heart fixed, his heart reoriented from his own perceived power and towards the all-sufficient grace of God in Jesus Now that doesn't make praying for the battle to be taken away wrong. Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed three times as he faced the suffering of his crucifixion. Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. It's a good thing. It's something that God desires for his people to cry out to him for justice, for an end to suffering. And he promises that he will bring justice, just not in the time frame that we expect it to happen. But what changes a prayer for deliverance from a demand to an expression of, utmost dependence and faith in God is these words, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus entered into his suffering with no delusion that it was going to be easy. He didn't think it was going to be minimised because he had a right standing with the Father. He knew that he would be broken and bruised and killed but that in giving himself to the utter weakness to this foreordained and carefully planned out purpose of the Father by being absolutely weak he would be powerfully accomplishing our salvation that's why he has the right to say to us My power is made perfect in weakness because we see that truth magnificently embodied in him. So the strongest people here today aren't those who've got their lives sorted out. Any of you who are facing battles or temptations or struggles, you're the strong ones. If you're facing anything that makes you weak, anything that brings you to the end of yourself, anything that makes you feel like giving up, or even to want to shake your fist at God and say, why, Lord? You're the strong ones. Christ's power is being made perfect in you. Jesus says to you, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So let's look to him. To him who, though he was rich, For our sake he became poor, that by his poverty we might become rich. Let's pray.